You know, sometimes it is uh, very difficult to process truth that you really don't want to hear. Um, a lot of people in our culture push back against truth. Um, the disciples are a case study of they really didn't listen to what Jesus was saying all of the time. Uh, they loved all of the jaw-dropping miracles, but they didn't quite connect all the dots with the things that he taught them about his entire ministry. They failed to understand that long before there would be the triumph of his life, there had to be the tragedy of his death. They didn't really pay attention to that too well. Uh, after the, the miracle of turning vast amounts of water into wine, which was his first miracle, uh, Jesus headed up to Jerusalem uh, from the Cana area, which was a very, very arduous walk, um, down from the mountains of Cana, down uh, into the flatlands, and then heading back up into the mountains of Jerusalem. Uh, it would be uh, one of three, possibly four times that he observed the Passover, which is kind of uh, interesting if you think about it. Uh, each time he went to Passover, and saw all of the, the lambs that were slain, he knew that he would be the ultimate Passover lamb, but he went in obedience. Uh, that first time that he went, uh, at the beginning of his ministry, he uh, was grieved because he saw money changers making vast amounts of money off the worshipers who came, charging exorbitant amounts of money to purchase a lamb for sacrifice. And so we know how he started his ministry, don't we? He formed a whip. Uh, and he kicked him out of the, of the temple. That's how he started his ministry. In fact, when you study the life of Christ, that's how he ended his ministry. That's why he bothered the religious authorities so much, because he wouldn't put up with the shenanigans and things that they did to prey upon the people. Uh, that first clearing of the temple really bothered the, the, the Pharisees and the leaders uh, and at that particular time, they wanted to know, by what authority did you, ju did you just clear the temple? Uh, he answered and said unto them, we read uh, in the scriptures, he said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. The Jews therefore said, it took 46 years to build this temple, Herod's temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But they didn't get the picture, did they? Because he wasn't talking about Herod's temple. He was talking about his temple, his body. It was one of those first times that he let everyone know around him that he had a mission of death to pay the penalty for sin, but really nobody was listening. After his uh, transfiguration, if you read in Matthew 17, verse 22, um, when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, which was probably on uh, the Mount Tabor, which is on the northern uh, rim of the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Armageddon. Uh, it's a beautiful hill. It's just a round-shaped uh, hill overlooking the Valley of Jezreel. Um, took the disciples up there, Peter, James, and John. must have been an awesome thing to see Christ uh, show his Shekinah glory to them. Um, but, but that particular uh, episode, when he came down from the Transfiguration, they met a little boy that was demon-possessed in the the disciples couldn't get the, the demon out of that little boy. Uh, and Jesus uh, kicked that demon out of that boy with a, with, with a great word. But he also said in uh, Matthew 17, 22, after that event, he said, the son of man, which his disciples heard this, is going to be delivered into the hands of men uh, and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. He told them explicitly what was going to happen. But again, nobody was really listening, because it's hard for us to process truths we don't want to really listen to. Speaking to the Jews uh, about how the, the, the fact was that he was the good shepherd and he was the true shepherd, as opposed to them, they were the false shepherds and they weren't the good shepherds. Uh, he told them that uh, he would be the father's sacrifice uh, for uh, the sheep. 
Uh, we read in the book of John chapter 10, which talks about him being the good shepherd. Uh, Jesus uh, puts his ministry together in this terminology. He said, even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep and I have other sheep which are not of this fold, uh, but I must bring them also and they shall hear my voice and they shall become one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay my life down and I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, speaking of his life, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. He's pretty explicit, isn't he? You can't kill him unless what? He lets you. He's going to lay his life down. Again, he's telling the disciples as they're listening to this discussion, uh, I might be the true shepherd of the flock, but I'm also a, a lamb that's going to lay my life down at the right time. When he verbally took on the hypocritical and vile and power-hungry Pharisees on another occasion in Matthew chapter 12, uh, they, had, uh, they didn't know what to do with him. So they attributed the works that he did, the miracles that he did uh, to the power of Satan, Beelzebub. Imagine, if you can't handle a person's argument, you then begin to do all kinds of other things to discredit them. How did they discredit Christ? They said he only does these, these signs, these miracles, because he's empowered by the devil. Sad, isn't it, when you have God himself walking among you and you can't tell that it's him? Uh, they arrogantly wanted a sign from him, these Pharisees. And Jesus said, uh, let's talk about signs. So we read uh, in the scriptures in Matthew chapter 12, uh, where he castigates them. Uh, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign shall be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. What kind of sign is that? Jesus said, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, uh, so shall the son of man, which is a code word for Jesus, be, in the, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh, Jesus said, shall stand up uh, to this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah's here. He said, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. He said, just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the, uh, the belly of a large fish, he said, I'm going to spend three days and three nights in a tomb. And he said, the sad thing is, on the day of judgment, the people from Nineveh, whom Jonah went to to preach the gospel, they, they turned to God based on the, the evidence of Jonah. But he said, it's a sad day because you religious leaders are rejecting the Messiah here in the flesh with all of the signs and wonders that I've done. And he said, the Ninevites are going to speak against you on Judgment Day because someone greater than Jonah's here. I'm the God-man standing among you. You know, he, again, the disciples could have heard this discussion about the fact that he was going to die and spend three days uh, in the heart of the earth and then be uh, one who would come to life as Jonah did, as it were. He would really come to life because he was going to die. But when you look at uh, what the Lord said, there was no doubt that he was on a mission to go to the cross. Just no one was listening. They were looking for the king to come to deliver them from the Romans. But if you look over his life, they spent much time trying to eliminate him. That's what they do with uh, people in a culture. They don't really know what to do with them because that person speaks truth. What do they do to them? Well, they don't engage their arguments. They try to eliminate the person. That's what they did to Christ. Uh, when he started his ministry, if you go back to Luke chapter 4, when he started that ministry in a synagogue, uh, and I'll, I'll be in that synagogue uh, in about three weeks. 
Uh, the original synagogue is still there in Nazareth. And if you know the priest that runs that little synagogue, uh, you can give him a few shekels. He'll unlock the big, big padlock on the door and let your group kind of go in there. It's an awesome thing to see, several thousand-year-old synagogue. Uh, and, and when you walk into it uh, and you go down a couple of steps on your left and your right is all the seating. And then directly in front of you is a raised platform called the Bema seat, the judgment seat where the Torah scroll was. And you're standing in that little, little room uh, where Jesus would have started his ministry in Luke 4. And that day he stood up and he read from the Torah scroll. And he, and he read from Isaiah 62, 61 verses 1 and 2. And then he stops reading and he says, Today the words of Isaiah concerning the Messiah are fulfilled. I'm here. What city was Jesus from? It's a Bible question we should probably all know. He was from what city? Nazareth. It's not a trick question. Could you imagine you, you were with this family, because it's a small town. Everyone knows Joseph's family. I mean, Joseph is, is, is in the trades uh, uh, using his carpentry skills and masonry skills to, to do things. Jesus learned all these things. And all of a sudden, uh, Joseph's son gets up and says in church one day, oh, yeah, by the way, this prophecy about the Messiah in, in Isaiah 61, today it is fulfilled within your ears. How would you have responded? Did, did you hear what he just said? They went nuts. They went crazy. I think berserk could be a Hebrew word. They, went, they just lost control. And so they took Jesus. It was a good little walk, but they took him to the cliffs near Nazareth. I have a picture that I took one day of the cliffs, uh, if we could show that picture. Um, I, this is about as close as I could get to the edge. Uh, back in Jesus' day, I highly doubt there was a busy freeway there, don't you know? Maybe a few camels going along there. But you can walk all around this ridge. And when you're standing here, this is on the southern rim of the, of the, the cliffs uh, with you know, Nazareth behind you. Uh, this is the Valley of Armageddon. This is amazing. Because when you're standing here to your left is Mount Tabor, where he transfigured. And directly in front of you is the Valley of Armageddon, where Jesus will come at the end of time and come back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And to your right, over on your right, is, is, the, is the Mount uh, Carmel where Elijah the prophet took on all the prophets of Baal. And then down on the valley floor, over off in the southern corner, is the, is the fortress of Megiddo, where Solomon had his huge, well, chariot army. And lots of great things happened in this area. They're trying to kill the Lord of glory by hurling him off a cliff. Why? He dared say that he was the messianic fulfillment of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. How dare he? But if you read from the scriptures in Luke chapter 4, as they were taking him there to throw him off the cliff, and you can see it's a cliff, um, well, it says that uh, he passed through their midst, and he went away. They're going crazy. They're dragging him with his tunic off to throw him off a cliff, and then all of a sudden, okay, it's now, throw him off, boys. Where, where'd he go? <laughs> you can imagine? Yeah. I don't, I, don't know where he, I don't know where he went. They couldn't find him. He just slipped away. How did he escape? Interesting. Uh, why did he escape? Well, it, it wasn't the right day. It wasn't the right time. Because that fateful Friday of Passover was still coming. 
It wasn't the right time. Later, uh, as hatred and opposition to his truthful teaching soared, uh, the religious and political leaders whipped the people into a frenzy because they couldn't handle the fact that he was telling the people truth. And so he slipped into Jerusalem because the opposition and persecution was so great uh, to observe the Feast of Tabernacles, according to John chapter 7, verse 10. And while he was there at the temple, he began to, well, courageously speak in the temple, his temple. Didn't take long for him to teach. And it didn't take long for the Pharisees to ask again for the opportunity to figure out, like, how can we arrest him? He's telling the truth to the people. How can we shut his mouth so he doesn't speak anymore? They tried to arrest him. They couldn't because the people liked him. So in John chapter 8, when he's still in the temple precincts, in verse 58, he goes so far as to tell them when they're asking him, who do you think you are? And he tells them, I am the I am. They went nuts. They, they went crazy. Why? Anybody that tells you that Jesus never said that he was, he was God in the flesh has not read the words of Jesus. He just said, I'm the I am. In Greek is ego imi. Ego is the first uh, person um, pronoun, I. Imi is the, is the verb, I am. He says, I am emphatically. He didn't need the pronoun. He throws, I know you don't like language. I do because God inspired the language. And he says emphatically, I am the I am. Because he had just told him before Abraham was, I am. They're looking at him, telling him, you're not even 40 years old yet. And you're saying that you saw Abraham? Are you out of your mind? And now you're saying you're the I am of the burning bush? You're Yahweh from the Old Testament? What did they try to do to him? Well, they tried to stone him. And and you read this all throughout the New Testament. Every time you turn around, they're trying to stone Jesus. And it's not hard in Israel because there's stones everywhere. There really is. There's an old rabbinical saying that says when God created the cosmos, he gave uh, angels some bags of rocks. Like, you know, each angel had a bag. And the one angel came back and said, Lord, there was a problem. I dropped the majority of my rocks over Israel. They tried to stone Jesus. Why? Because of blasphemy. But when they tried to stone him in John 8, 58 and following, uh, again, he escaped. Why did he escape? It wasn't the right day. It wasn't the right time. Because the fateful Friday was still coming. When he traveled to Jerusalem later uh, in his, his life to observe the Feast of Dedication, or what we might call Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights, he again boldly entered the Temple Mount. You would think if you were him, you'd be somewhat gun-shy. Ah, Jesus was courageous. He took on sin and, and that which was evil. He heads right for the Temple Mount again, and uh, he went so far in John 10, verse 30, to tell them that day, uh, well, not only am I the I am, but I and the Father are one. Huh? You, you mean that you are, you're, you're divine? They, they went crazy. It says in the scriptures, John 10, 33, that they grabbed stones. Why did they grab stones? Because there's stones everywhere. They're going to stone him for blasphemy. What did he do? It says in John 10, 39, he escaped out of their hand. How did he do it? Who knows? You can ask him when you see him. How'd you pull that one off? 
No, he just kind of slipped out. As they're grabbing, grabbing stones, he turned around to throw them. He's gone. Why did he escape? It wasn't the what? Wasn't the right day. Wasn't the right time. And it really wasn't the right place. Why? Because the fateful Friday of Passover was still coming. But we know that he eventually permitted them to get him. Right? All happened in a garden. And in a couple of weeks, I'm going to take my tour group to that garden. Uh, right next to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, just across the, the Kidron Valley, which is more like a little gorge from the Temple Mount. Uh, this is a picture I took from the Mount of Olives. Uh, you can see the, the Dome of the Rock, but the temple would have been in that vicinity. You can see the eastern gate that Jesus will come through when he comes back, according to Zechariah chapter 14. Uh, but on this mount, Mount of Olives, down at the base of it is the, is the Garden of Gethsemane. We know that Jesus went there with the disciples, and we know that they arrested him there. And then all of a sudden, he permitted them to take them, take him that night. Because, he, well, a whole lot of things could have happened much differently than what happened. He could have kept Judas from betraying him, but he didn't. Why? Because he had a divine rendezvous with a Friday, Passover Friday. He could have called upon legions of angels in their dimensionality to escort him out of the garden that night, but he didn't. Why? He had a divine rendezvous with a Friday afternoon. He could have allowed Peter, you know, Peter came prepared. Peter had a weapon. Good old Peter, bull in the china shop, an emotional guy, emotionally made actions, thought later. You ever met anybody like that? Certainly not in our church, but that was Peter. Peter had a, had a sword that night. Jesus could have empowered him and made him a Samson-like character. He could have taken on all the enemies in the garden, but he didn't. In fact, uh, he tells Peter, to put your sword back in the sheath, uh, you, you, you're not going to need it. Why? Because, well, he had a rendezvous with a Friday afternoon. You know, he, he could have, uh, if you read, I love John chapter 18, verse 6. It says, when the temple police showed up and asked him who he was, are you Jesus? And he says, it, you know, it is I. It says they fell back. The Greek text is what, because the original text doesn't just say they fell back. He blew them over. I mean, they fell down in his presence. He just let them know, you're coming to arrest the God-man Messiah. But then he let them arrest him. Why did he do that? Well, he had a rendezvous with Friday afternoon. He could have successfully and logically dismantled every, every argument that the political leaders uh, posed, posed about him. Uh, it, all, the, all the trials, all the trumped-up trials in the middle of the night, they defied all Sanhedrin law when they assembled in the middle of the night because they didn't have any evidence against them. And so they had all these trials in the middle of the night, uh, three Jewish trials. Uh, Jesus could have been the masterful attorney that evening and taken them all on and dismantled all their arguments as to why they said execute him. But he was mostly silent. Why? He had a rendezvous with the Friday afternoon. Uh, when they uh, took him over to the political side of the realm and had three other trials with him before Pilate, one with Herod Antipas, and then they sent him back to Pilate, and then Pilate's going to wash his hands of Jesus. Jesus could have taken on Pilate and Herod Antipas and Pilate again. But in six trials, he just stood there silent for the most part. Why? We had a rendezvous with a Friday afternoon.
You know, think about a pilot. He thought washing his hands would absolve him of executing an innocent man. Think of the horror of Pilate's decision. Law didn't matter to him. Lawlessness mattered. Truth didn't matter. Falsity mattered. Legal order didn't matter. Legal disorder mattered. Facts didn't matter to him. Disinformation mattered to Pilate. The life of an innocent man didn't matter either. Death mattered because it would finally silence Jesus and maybe put a little peace between Pilate and his adversaries among the Jews. So in the middle of all of that injustice, that murderous hatred of Christ, those trials that were not even according to law, in the middle of all of that mayhem, the Father's looking down from heaven saying, I got this. In fact, I thought about this for a long time. Because when you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, it says, before the foundation of the worlds were, before God spoke the cosmos into existence, Peter says that's when the Lord, in God's mind, was sacrificed. See, all those religious political leaders thought they were going to eliminate their major problem, Jesus. And the Father says, no, no. He's going to be a triumphant one day, a king of kings. But before he's the king of kings, he has a rendezvous with a Friday afternoon as the Passover lamb. Uh, Nine o'clock in the morning, uh, on that Friday morning, that Passover, they put him on the cross. And, and the Jews got what they wanted. They twisted and bent the law and finally got him on that cross. But they only got him on the cross because he permitted them to do it. Remember? He said, no one can take my life. I must lay it down in John 10. He permitted them. At 9 o'clock in the morning, now it was the right day. Now it was the right time for him to be the sacrifice for all of mankind. At noon, the Holy Father turned the lights of the cosmos down. Even extra biblical literature verifies the fact that it got dark that afternoon at noon. It doesn't get dark at noon, does it? Maybe around here it does because it rains all the time. But we're talking about cosmic darkness on a clear day when there's no clouds. Must have been eerie, don't you know? You're standing there. And Jesus is on the cross with the two thieves. And all of a sudden, the sun just starts getting darker. But there's no clouds. That was at noon. That went on until 3 o'clock. Deep darkness. As Jesus dealt with sin and evil on that cross. At precisely 3 p.m., my Jesus, hopefully your Jesus, in the darkness, screamed three words. Remember what he screamed? Of all the seven statements of Christ, the last one is super important. He said, it is finished. It is finished. What is finished? The redemptive plan that I and the Father and the Holy Trinity have put together to save sinners. It is now finished. It is 3 p.m. It was the right day. It was the right time. It was Passover. He was in absolute full control of laying his life down at 3 p.m. Do you actually think it was by chance he died at 3 p.m.? I don't. You know, 
if you think about uh, the Temple Mount, and I have a picture of the Temple Mount at the day of Christ, the Herodian Temple. It's a picture I took from uh, the model of Jerusalem uh, one time when I was in Israel. So this is the Antonia Fortress where Jesus was put on trial with um, Pilate. This is the, the temple. Uh, Mount of Olives would be over in this direction because we're looking east. Outside this gate, there was a little hill here. And that is where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre now is. And that is where I believe, based on archaeological evidence, is, it was the site of the, of the crucifixion of Christ. That's, that's the little hill he died on. There, the other hill, uh, if you follow this little road around over here, is the more traditional Golgotha that we can see in pictures. It looks like a skull hill. But it didn't look that way back in that, that day and time because that's just, it looks like a skull because of uh, modern uh, mining didn't look like that back then but you have more archaeological evidence to say Christ died outside the city gate before all this was built he died outside the city gate on this hill for all to see and just across the wall of the temple um, you have the holy of holies and holy place and the Lord of glory is dying outside the gate I have another picture I want to show you uh, think of Jesus outside the gate because what was going on inside the temple at 3 p.m. is most interesting. What day was it? It was Passover. In this area where the, where the altar is, and uh, when you would lay your hand upon the little lamb and confess your sin on the lamb, your sin was transferred to the lamb. That lamb was then slain by a priest up in this area where they would slay all the animals, the lambs, and then they would put the blood on the altar here because when the fire consumed the blood, it denoted that God had just transferred his wrath from you to the lamb. But in that particular area, there were priests who formed two lines in this area where the, where the lambs were slain, in this area. Jesus is dying on, outside the city gate over here. And while he's dying, approaching 3 p.m., they are over here forming two lines. They had bowls. One line of priests had silver bowls. Another line of priests had golden bowls. And as the lambs were slain, they would put the bowl down and catch the blood from the animal and pass it to the next priest who would pass it to the next priest. And these bowls were constantly going around and around and around, constantly catching sacrificial blood. And then they, the last priest would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on the altar for uh, God to accept that sacrifice. Do you know when that particular process culminated? Well, it wasn't 2 o'clock. It wasn't 4 o'clock. It wasn't even 2.30. That entire priestly function was going on while Jesus was outside the city gate hanging on a cross, laying his life down as the Passover lamb, knowing that his life was going to put an end to the need for all of that. And at precisely 3 o'clock when he screamed, what three words? It is finished. That was the exact moment they sprinkled the last blood on that altar. He had finished that. He was the true priest. He had this down to a T. He laid his life down at the right time. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. He says in verse 6, for while we were still helpless, notice what he says, at the what? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You can take the word ungodly and put your name in there. For while I, Marty, was still helpless, because I was born a sinner, at the right time Christ died for me. You can put your name in there. 
Because when you become a Christian, you realize that you were helpless and you did need a Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb, that is the lamb of all lambs, is Jesus Christ, who died at the right time. What was the right time? 3 p.m. It wasn't an accident. Because that's when they finished the sacrifices for the Passover lambs. And the Passover lamb was outside the city gate, as prophesied, paying for the sin of all mankind. What was the ultimate purpose of the death of Christ on that cross? Uh, Paul goes on to say in Romans 5, verse 7, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than he says, having now been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. I don't know how you feel about prepositions, but those are some very important prepositions. Because he, notice what he says. We've been justified as Christians in the past tense by means of his blood. So I know when I draw my last breath, I'm not, I'm not fearful. Why? My life is covered by his blood that I in his presence have been declared righteous, holy, not by my work, but by his work. And it says we're, we will be saved from the wrath of God. Notice the prepositional phrase, through him, not through any work that you ever did, not through any amount of money you ever gave to God. You only are saved from the wrath of God through being related by faith through the blood of Christ. You related to Christ through the blood of Jesus? How does that happen for a person? Will you realize, Lord, at the right time, you died for me, and I'm a sinner, and I need you as my Savior. The day that you do that, he mystically just washes all your sin away by his powerful blood and makes you his child. And that's all possible because he had a perfect plan to redeem you that he executed down to the minute. If you don't know him, I don't know what you're waiting for. Today's the day. No man knows if you'll be here next year for Good Friday. The Lord calls you to repent today and trust him. I'm glad God had a plan because we certainly didn't have one. His plan was perfect. If you're a saint, you should give him praise. Give him thanks when you're alone and say, Lord, thank you for taking all of the things that you ever planned to get your son to that cross. Thank you for the thousands of years that you worked through all the pages of the Old Testament to make sure that Jesus would die at 3 p.m. just as prophesied to save someone like me. And if you don't know him, then today in the quietness of your room, maybe when you get home, is just say, Lord, hey, I don't, there's lots of things I don't understand, lots of questions that I have, but I do now understand I'm a sinner and you're the Savior and I want you tonight and he will save you. I want to end uh, this evening by showing a, a video uh, that I think uh, kind of puts into perspective all that we just talked about for the last few minutes. A voice whispers, forget what you've done. We are marked by a lifetime of selfish choices, a legacy of harsh words, terrible thoughts. Look at what you've done, the constant jealousy, 
the envy of what others possess, the disregard for people in the pursuit of what we desire, what we insist we are entitled to, the enemy whispers, look at what you've done. Hiding our addictions, telling lies to ourselves, to our spouses, to our friends, convincing the world that we are fine while we are breaking into pieces. Look at what you've done, medicating our emptiness with screens and swipes, entertaining ourselves with the wicked, the indecent, the disturbing, feeding on luxury while forgetting the poor. Satan whispers, look at what you've done. The betrayal of our own beliefs. From hype to hypocrisy, building the walls of our own kingdom, loving darkness more than light. Look at what you've done. The bitterness, the gossip, the brooding, the prejudice, the enemy is gloating. Look at what you've done. Look at all your shame. Look at all your guilt. Look at all your chains. Look at what you've done. You deserve wrath. You deserve hell. You deserve death. Look at what you've done. And really, he's right. That is what we've done. But to every whisper, to every accusation, we remind the enemy of Jesus. And we say, look at what he's done. He commanded the universe into being. Light emerged from his voice, that's what he's done. He scripted the totality of time and he wrote his glory into every line, that's what he's done. He stepped down from heaven, took on our flesh, he humbled himself becoming obedient to death, that's what he's done. Forgiving our sins, that's what he's done. Dying in our place, that's what he's done. He was dead, buried, but then he rose from the grave. That's what he's done. Death defeated, hell scorned, debt paid, veil torn. No matter our past, Jesus has overcome. The dead are alive. That's what he's done. Yeah, that's what he's done. You know, the, the, the veil on the temple was massive. I mean, thicker than the width of your hand. I don't know how, you, how good you are at tearing apart like a DC phone book, <laughs> but I bet you can't. But when he died on that, that hill that day, and he put an end to all the, those little lambs, that veil was also torn by the Holy Father from the top down. Why? Because he wanted to show that now you as a sinner, when you become a saint, have full access to me. Is that not awesome? That's what he's done. That you as a believer can walk boldly into his presence, not fear him, and call him Father. Do you know him? If you do, thank him for the opportunity because he now allows you to go into that holy place. That's what he's done. And if you don't understand what he's done for your life yet, well, I hope you figure it out this evening and he becomes your savior. Why don't you stand and we will pray.
Lord, we thank you for leaving the glory of heaven, uh, for becoming a man, dealing with all the things we have to deal with, being spit at, yelled at, mocked, made fun of, ridiculed, laughed at, scorned, beaten, crucified. And you did all that out of your love for us to bear our sin. You truly were the innocent Passover lamb that laid your life down for us. We thank you for the fact that at the moment of faith, in ways we can't begin to comprehend, that bloodshed 2,000 years ago is painted by you on the, the lintels of our, of our life, of our doors, to our hearts, and you forgive us. And if one doesn't know the wonder of your salvation, might this be the day they say, Lord, cover me with your sacrificial blood and you shall. Thank you for what you've done. May we live to praise you for it, and may we live in light of what you've done in such a way that there's a great joy about us because we're forgiven and we lead many people into the kingdom because of our example. Praise you for going to that cross 2,000 years ago and being the victor. In Jesus' name, amen.